and welcome to the Discast. This week we're going to talk Russia, China, foreign policy. It's amazing to me how really attenuated the discourse is on those questions and an understanding of where we've been on foreign policy for the last 30 or even 70 years and where we go from here. And I can't think of anyone I'd rather talk to about this than the guest who has agreed to come on and talk. And his name is John Mearsheimer, a legend in the study of international affairs. He is a scholar. John Mearsheimer is a scholar of international relations and is one of the most famous, and I think rightly famous, proponents of the realist school in foreign policy. He's taught political science at the University of Chicago since 1982. And before that, he served five years in the Air Force as a West Point grad. John has written six books. The latest is titled The Great Delusion, Liberal Dreams and International Realities. What a wonderful subtitle. <laughs> you, could, you, could, you could redeploy that in any number of contexts. But uh, John, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for asking me, Andrew. It's my pleasure to be here. I, I start these podcasts by asking people to tell me how, how really they came to be who they are. And tell, can you tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what your formative influences were and why you became interested in foreign policy and, and gravitated towards realism? Where were you born? I was born in Brooklyn, New York, on December 14th, 1947, many moons ago. And we lived in New York City until I was about eight years old. And then we moved to Westchester County, right above the city. And my father, of course, commuted into New York every day where he worked. So I grew up in New York City and in Croton. And then after graduating from high school, I spent one year as an enlisted man in the Army. And then I went to West Point for four years. And as you said, after graduating from West Point, I went into the Air Force. Now, what happened to me, Andrew, was when I was at West Point, I was a terrible student. When I tell people that I was in the bottom one-third of my class at West Point, and I wasn't even the top man in the bottom one-third, they find that hard to believe because they think I came out of my mother's womb reading Clausewitz. But nothing could be further <laughs> from the truth, right? I was really... Uh, sort of your classical screw-off, until I took a course in my junior year at West Point on international relations. And I fell in love with the subject. Why? I don't know. I just fell in love with it. And then I took a number of international relations courses in my senior year. I did very well. And I decided that come hell or high water, I was going to get a PhD in political science, not because I wanted to become an academic, but just because I loved the subject and I wanted to do that for the rest of my life. So I got out of the Air Force and I went to Cornell University and I got a PhD there. And I think what happened to me at Cornell is that it became quite clear to me and to my professors that I was really good at the enterprise. It's like sports. Some people can hit a 100-mile-an-hour fastball. They can see the stitches on the ball. They can hit it. Other people can't even see the ball. When you go to graduate school, some people have it and some people don't. It's hard to say exactly why. But for some reason, I was very good at doing scholarship. And I did very well at Cornell. And uh, I wrote about 
military affairs. I wrote about conventional deterrence as a graduate student. And in doing that, I slowly but steadily got interested in the bigger questions about international relations, questions about how the world works. And my reading of the historical record told me that realism tells you a great deal about how international politics works. It doesn't tell you everything. No theory tells you everything, because theories, of course, are simplifications of reality. But I thought realism was a really useful lens for looking at the world. And slowly but let's, steadily... Let's just one, yeah, yeah, go ahead. John, let me just hold for one second, because I think a lot of readers who, listeners who may not have gone through graduate school or even be aware, uh, just define what realism means to you in a, as, as, a, as a term in foreign policy. Realism is a theory that basically says... States care above all else about the balance of power. States want to make sure that they have as much power relative to other great powers as possible. It's a theory that pays little attention to individuals and pays little attention to domestic politics. Now, most Americans believe that there's a fundamental difference between democratic regimes and autocratic regimes when it comes to how they behave in the international system. Realists believe there's effectively no difference, that autocratic regimes and democratic regimes behave the same way because the structure of the system forces all states to behave in similar ways. And that similar way is to pursue power. So that, I think, in capsule form is what realism is all about. And if you do look at the long-term history, at least I, when I went through it all, I found, I found that to be the most persuasive school that really helped at least explain much, most of what I saw happening. And now let's bring that to the present or recent present. We've, we've lived in, in your lifetime, particularly through an extraordinary change in world affairs. I grew up, you grew up even more so, in the context of an ideological Cold War between the Free West and the Soviet Union and its satellites. And then, of course, we won, and or they lost, whatever way you want to put it. And America then was a unipolar power in some ways. I remember being at the New Republic and editing a piece you must have loved by Charles Krauthammer called The Unipolar Moment. And we had lots of options. How do we deal with Russia? How do we deal with China now? What do we do with Eastern Europe? What do we do with Germany? All these questions. And I want to go back to that moment, you know, the moment of decision in the late 90s or the late eight, early 90s, late 90s and early 2000s with respect to Russia and China. What were the, the key mistakes you think the West made in that moment with respect? First of all, let's talk about Russia. Let me just start off by talking about the great transition that took place. Sure. I, I look at it slightly different than you do. I don't look at it as us going from an ideological conflict to the unipolar moment. I look at it as us going from bipolarity to unipolarity. And what, of course, is happening today is we have left unipolarity in the rearview mirror and we're going to multipolarity. So you and I, Andrew, have lived through three different structural systems, bipolarity, unipolarity, and multipolarity. Now, focusing on what happened in the early 1990s, 
When you're in a bipolar world as we were in the Cold War or a multipolar world as we are now, great power politics or realpolitik is alive and well because you have great powers that can compete with each other. In the unipolar moment in the early 1990s, there was only one great power on the planet, Uncle Sam. There were no other great powers to compete with. So realism, in a very important way, goes out the window. And you are now free to pursue an ideological foreign policy, which is hard mm. to pursue in bipolarity or multipolarity because realism is in the driver's seat. So it's just very important to understand there at the start of the unipolar moment, the United States was in a position to pursue an ideological foreign policy. Now, there were two articles that were written. One was Charles Krauthammer's The Unipolar Moment, and the other was Frank Fukuyama's The End of History. In many ways, the most important article on foreign policy ever written in the history of the United States. More important, in my opinion, than Kennan's piece on containment. Now, the basic argument... You're, you're referring to Fukuyama there, not Krauthammer. Yes, I'm, I'm referring to Fukuyama. <laughs> although, although Krauthammer's yeah. argument was, Krauthammer's article was very important. In my opinion, yes. those, those were the two smartest neocons on the planet, right? Fukuyama, of course, no longer identifies as a neocon, and Charles Krauthammer is unfortunately passed away. But those two articles mattered. And what we did was we decided that we were going to spread democracy all over the planet. Remember, Frank Fukuyama argues in the end of history that fascism is dead, communism is dead, and the wave of the future is democracy. Democracy is inexorably going to spread all over the planet. Charles Krauthammer says the United States is so powerful today that it can do all sorts of things in international politics that it never dreamed of during the Cold War. So if you marry Krauthammer's argument with Fukuyama's argument, you just take all that military power and you use it to facilitate the rapid spread of democracy across the planet. And that is basically what defined our foreign policy during the unipolar moment. Now, your question has to do with Russia. What we decided we're going to try to do with Russia is turn it into a liberal democracy. We wanted to make Russia look like us because, of course, we believe that we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. And if they end up looking like us, then they're good guys. And if every state on the planet becomes a liberal democracy, it's a planet that's filled with nothing but liberal democracies. And you effectively take war off the table. Remember, Frank Fukuyama's 1989 piece on the end of history, he says at the end of the piece that the biggest problem that we're going to face in the future is boredom. Boredom. Why are we going to face boredom as a problem? Because it's going to be a peaceful planet, because every state is a liberal democracy. And again, just to go back to Krauthammer, Krauthammer says that you have the military means to facilitate that process. And of course, Russia and China and all sorts of countries in the Middle East think the Bush doctrine are in our gun sights. And we begin off on this crusade. The United States is a crusader state from roughly 1990 up until Donald Trump gets elected in 2017. And we all know how well it worked out. With Russia, neoconservatives and indeed liberal internationalists 
saw a chance. They even discussed bringing Russia into NATO at one point, right? But they also aggressively wanted to bring the Eastern European states within NATO's orbit, even though it's not quite sure what they were defending themselves against. And that was also, they, although they didn't quite go there, there were an assertion that as the Soviet Union collapsed, that some of the former states and nationalities that had formed the Soviet Union would have their own independence. And one of those would have been Ukraine, of course. When you look back and see how we uh, talk to Ukraine, as I understand it, and tell me if I'm wrong, we gave them a guarantee that if they got rid of their nuclear weapons, we would defend their territorial integrity. When did that happen? Remind me. Well, I think 2008 is the key year. And basically, NATO expansion is debated in the Clinton administrations throughout the mid-1990s. And President Clinton steps in to this big dispute and says, we will expand NATO. And the first tranche, Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic, is in 1999. The second tranche is in 2004. And that includes countries like the Baltic states, Romania, and so forth and so on. Then, and this is where the really important decision on Ukraine takes place, in April 2008, at the NATO summit in Bucharest, we issue a statement after the summit is finished that says Ukraine and Georgia will become part of NATO. And that's when the Ukraine issue comes front and center vis-a-vis -vis NATO expansion. Putin and all sorts of other Russian leaders at the time say this is categorically unacceptable and this is not going to happen. And the Russians, of course, say the same thing with regard to Georgia. And it's no accident, Andrew, that in August 2008, you have a war over Georgia. Then in February 2014, the war breaks out over Ukraine. So you can see the fateful decision on not only Ukraine, but on Georgia was made in April 2008. And that's the... Now, that commitment, that commitment to NATO was not a, a guarantee, right? I mean, they didn't say you... Did they, I mean, let's clarify exactly what the U.S. said or what NATO said. You will at some point, or there's a possibility at some point, or that perhaps you might at some point. What, what were the criteria that they laid out for inclusion in NATO if they were going to do it for Ukraine and Georgia? They simply said that, Na that Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO. Right. Hmm. It wasn't qualified. Of course, in practice, it would be qualified in the sense that both Georgia and Ukraine would have to achieve certain goals to get admitted. But that was not stated. It was categorically said that they would become members of NATO. And uh, well, let me put the argument that people would have made at the time to you, and people did make at the time, which was, look, well, what's the problem? We're not an aggressive, party. we're a defensive alliance. We believe in democracy. What has Russia got to be afraid of. We're not going to try and intervene. NATO is about defense. Why can't Russia chill out and let NATO be in Georgia and Ukraine since we're not going to be in any way aggressive towards Russia? There's no question that that was our world. We viewed ourselves as a benign hegemon. And NATO expansion is very important to emphasize this. 
was not aimed at containing Russia. We did not fear right. Russian expansion at the time. We were simply trying to create a zone of peace in Eastern Europe, much like we had done in Western Europe. So we were enlarging the zone of peace. And we told the Russians on countless occasions that we are a benign hegemon. This not aimed at you. You don't have to be fearful. The problem is that's not how the Russians saw it. And how the Russians see it matters enormously. The fact is the Russians were thinking according to basic realist logic. And they saw a military alliance that had been a mortal foe of the Soviet Union marching up to their doorstep. And unsurprisingly, they did not want this to happen. They swallowed the first tranche of NATO expansion, and they even swallowed the second tranche. But there was not going to be a third tranche. And this is basic realpolitik logic. So you see what's going on here is that NATO, I'm here talking mainly about American leaders, and Russian leaders, and here we're talking mainly about Putin, are like two ships passing in the night because they're playing according to two different playbooks. Yeah, it, it, and it's very hard, though, given the, and, and, and as I understand, I remember I was part of this, so I'm going to take full responsibility. I was sort of ambiguous about some of this stuff at the time, but the, the sense of triumph after the Cold War, the sense of the inevitability of democracy, and the sense that democracy would always lead to peace and that, that these other issues would be resolved was very powerful. It was it became gained even more power, powerful when intervention in Bosnia seemed to bring about some kind of negotiated it was it was also in getting getting Saddam out of Kuwait also quite successful. It, it gave the sense that we were almost invulnerable and that of course we were benign. And that, of course, this was all for the good in the end. And, and why can't Russia become uh, a, a normal European country with Democrat, liberal democracy taking root in it? I do think that, you know, when we go back and we judge decisions made, it's so important for us to understand the context in which they were made. I mean, these were mistakes, I think, in retrospect, <laughs> of overreach that we're now having to grapple with. Ukraine also, though, seemed to want to become at least elements within it. It's obviously a very corrupt system, but wanted to move towards liberal democracy. And the, the Orange Revolution seemed to uh, presage that. Tell me how that moment factored into the, the geopolitics of this. Well, I, I think that there's no doubt that there are large numbers of people in Ukraine who would like to move toward the West, right? And the West was, in effect, doing three different things vis-a-vis Ukraine to make it part of the West. First is NATO expansion, which we've talked about. But going hand in hand with NATO expansion was EU expansion, because we wanted to bring Ukraine into the EU. And then the third element in the strategy was the Orange Revolution, which you just alluded to, which was all designed to turn uh, Ukraine into a burgeoning liberal democracy. From the Russian point of view, this was all bad news. Just let's talk about the Orange Revolution. The Russians worry that after the Orange Revolution, there's going to be a purple revolution or a green revolution in Russia, right? They're next. And of course, this is our ultimate goal. 
the Chinese and the Russians both worry greatly about the United States trying to affect regime change. And we are bent on regime change all across the planet. So their fears are completely justified. So the Orange Revolution, right, and the Rose Revolution in Georgia are going to scare the living bejesus out of the Russians. In addition to that, you're getting EU expansion, you're getting NATO expansion, and you can see where this all leads from Russia's point of view. And this brings me back to try to embellish the point you were just making in your comments before your question. There's no doubt that everybody had this optimistic view of international politics after the Cold War ended, that we were in a new era. But it's very important to add to that by saying that they also believed that people like me were now dinosaurs, that people like John Mearsheimer had been relegated to the dustbin of history. But the fact is, in Russia and in China, the people were thinking like John Mearsheimer. They had a very realist view in Moscow of NATO expansion. And this is my earlier point to you that we're playing according to do two different playbooks. We're playing according to a very liberal playbook, and they're playing according to a realist playbook. And the playbook that they are operating uh, with matters greatly for how these things play out. But we were we just But isn't it also true that that advancing liberal democracy is also in our state's interests? I mean, aren't isn't the United States being realist at the same time? Because by neutering their potential foes or by spreading democracy, their own influence seems to grow. In other words, no state has ever actually not been realist at some level. And they have disguised it with all sorts of arguments of, of ideology or of democracy. But at some point, they are, the United States was always defending and advances, advancing its own interests, even as it entered that liberal liberal phase. Uh, is that, is, would that be uh, a misjudgment? No, I, I think you're, you're right that we were pursuing a policy, what I and others call liberal hegemony, that we thought mm -hmm. served our interests. Mm -hmm. But those right. interests were not defined in realist terms. Right. right. In other words, it's very important to understand that we did not view Russia as a potential aggressor before February 2014, when the Ukraine crisis broke out. So NATO expansion was not based on realist logic. It was based mm -hmm. on liberal logic. But again, mm -hmm. to go to your point, we did think that this was in our interest. I would argue it was not in our interest in pursuing this cockamamie foreign policy from 1990 up until when Trump entered the White House has done significant damage to liberalism at home. My argument is that a liberal foreign policy, liberalism abroad, undermines liberalism at home. I want to stick to Ukraine for a moment, but that's a very interesting point, which I'd like to get to later. In, in terms of its history, has Ukraine ever really been an independent, viable state independent of Russia, a single contiguous entity that that was that that had a sense of nationality, or was it, or has it always been a bit like Poland, kind of constantly being warred over by its its neighbors? Well, I think there was always a very powerful sense of national identity in Poland, and in that sense, I think it's different than Ukraine. 
I think Ukrainian mm-hmm. identity has been mixed up in all sorts of complicated ways with Russian identity. The argument I would make is that Ukraine was a sovereign state between 1991 and 2013. It was basically a buffer state, a neutral state between Russia and the West. The conversations that we're having about Ukraine today did not exist between 1991 and 2013. And what really screwed things up was NATO and EU expansion, coupled with the Orange Revolution, which led to the February 2014 crisis and eventually a war. So what we should do now, in my opinion, is try everything we can to go back to the status quo ante. But there is a precedent here, the 1991 to 2013 period. But I think if you look before 1991, you can find really no meaningful evidence of a sovereign Ukrainian nation state. I mean, Poland, we know, was a nation state between 1919 and 1939. But Ukraine does not have that history. And of course, Ukraine also has a, has a there's a distinction between the eastern and western parts of it. There, the further east you go, the more Russian speakers there are. The further west you go, it's more Ukrainian and slightly more liberal democratic, and more obviously somewhat European. So, so what do we do at this point? What would be the right response to Putin's essential demand? And, and let's let's think about what his demand now. His demand is that we we commit that that Ukraine will never be a part of NATO. Maybe you can help me with this. Like, what exactly? And he also wants a commitment more generally for the West on in Eastern Europe. Am I am I correct there? Tell me, yeah. tell me what you think Putin really wants. Well, he he wants a written commitment that mm-hmm. Ukraine will never become part of NATO. And the reason mm-hmm. he wants a written commitment is, you know, that the West promised Gorbachev that there would be no NATO expansion, but they did not put it in writing. So now we've brought out all these clever lawyers who say, really, we didn't tell them that we wouldn't expand NATO and so forth and so on. So this time the Russians are determined to get it in writing that there will be no NATO expansion to include Ukraine. So that's the first part of the story. Furthermore, they want a commitment from us that we're not going to put ballistic missiles in Europe that can hit Russia. And they want us to take the military forces, right, and the force structure, the the bases and what have you, that we have moved eastward since 1997 and move them all back to where they were in 1997, right? They want... So we've moved these forces from... France, Germany, Britain into Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Eastern Europe is is that that's what's happened? Yeah, we, we've de- we've deployed some forces, not many. We have been fully aware that deploying too many forces in the east, in, in territory that was formerly controlled by the Soviet Union, would be a source of big trouble. So we've only done a limited amount of, let's call it, material expansion, but. At this point, the Russians say a limited amount of material expansion is unacceptable. And they want to. They don't want NATO's minor incursion in Eastern Europe. (laughs) That was a joke. 
the way to think about this, in my opinion, Andrew, was to think about the Monroe Doctrine, right? We mm -hmm. have the Monroe Doctrine here in the United States. And for us, it's verboten for any distant great power, any European great power, or any Asian great power to form a military alliance with a country in the Western Hemisphere and put military forces in the Western Hemisphere. You remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. The idea that the Soviets were going to deploy nuclear-armed missiles in Cuba was unacceptable. And later, when they talked about building a naval base at Cienfuegos, we told them in no uncertain terms, this is not happening. This was our sphere of influence, and you're not allowed in. Well, what's going on with regard to Ukraine today or Eastern Europe more generally, to get to your question, is that the Russians are saying, this is our sphere of influence and you're not welcome here. You got away with expanding when we were weak and we weren't paying serious enough attention, i.e. the 1999 and 2004 expansions. But we want you to roll them back now in good part. And we certainly don't want you expanding NATO. And by the way, we want this in writing because we don't trust you as far as we can throw you. So should we, does it make sense for the West at this point, given that he's amassed these troops as a sort of leverage that they're talking overall about the general organization of forces in Eastern Europe? What should our actual posture be now? Is it, let us say, I mean, let's posit the we might say, yeah, let us try and accommodate you. What could we ask in return, for example? How do we, what deal would be possible with Putin at this point? You see, the problem that we face... That wouldn't seem like total surrender to him. That's what I'm saying. No, I, under, I, I think you, you've hit the issue right on the head, right? If we concede to any of his demands, especially the demand that we say in writing Ukraine will not become part of NATO, it's going to look like Munich in 1938. And Biden is going to be hammered like you wouldn't believe. And as you know, Biden is already in deep political trouble, right? If he caves in or is seen to be caving in uh, to Putin, this will, this will really finish him off. So I think that creating a neutral Ukraine works to solve that problem. Because not only does the United States make a concession, because if you say you're going to have a neutral Ukraine, it's not going to become part of NATO. But Putin makes a concession as well, because Putin gives up a Russian commitment to make Ukraine part of Moscow's orbit. So both sides are making concessions for the purposes of going back to the status quo ante. And that goes a long way towards solving the problem that you described. Given how crazy American politics is, and given the extreme Russophobia in this country, there are limits to what Biden can do, right, to cut a deal here. But I think he can go a long way toward looking like he's not capitulating to Russia if the two sides work together to create a neutral Ukraine. Clearly, we're not going to send troops to Ukraine if, if Putin were to, quote unquote, invade or do whatever he does, right? So there's, at some point, there's no way we can beat him in Ukraine as such. So 
it does seem to me a, a recognition of our own reality that we do some kind of deal with it that somehow now what would happen to quote unquote democracy in Ukraine is that something that a neutral state that surely Russia would attempt to influence it and what does neutrality mean from Russia's point of view what would it forbid Russia from doing well the basic argument would be that it would forbid Russia from trying to make uh, Ukraine look like Belarus today. It's quite clear that mm -hmm. the Belarusians and the Russians are operating very clearly. They're, you know, forming uh, a quasi-military alliance, and, and, and the, they work, operate together militarily, training exercises, and so forth and so on. If you created a neutral Ukraine, that would not be the case. The Ukrainian military and the Russian military would be two separate entities, and they would have little to do with each other. And again, you'd go back to what the situation could we, looked could like. We support the, could we support the Ukrainian military, or would that be a violation of neutrality? That would be a violation of neutrality. Right. I yeah, mean, if, if if we were to do that, it would have to be done in with court in coordination with the Russians. Uh, there's just no question about that. Right. And what role does Russia play in the world in the future? Like, it, it, obviously, Russia is no longer a superpower, but it is a, a very well armed nuclear power with a great deal of energy reserves, which it 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 has, which gives it considerable leverage over Western Europe, particularly Germany, in terms of energy supply. What role do you see, see Russia playing in the, the, the world order as we go forward? I think there's no question that Russia is a great power. It will remain a great power. And therefore, the United States has to pay it significant attention. But the fact is, the two great powers in the world that matter the most and are both far more powerful than Russia are China and the United States. And it's what the, a great segue. Yeah. <laughs> we but, can now talk about China. But I would just say to you, Andrew, if you have three great powers in the world and you have an intense security competition setting in between China and the United States, it's in America's interest to have Russia as an ally. It's not in America's interest to drive the Russians into the arms of the Chinese, which is effectively what we have done. I see that point extremely well. I mean, as you if well, only we could get over. Go on. So I, was going, I was going to say, as you well know, in World War II, when we took on the Third Reich, right, we were glad to be allied with the Soviet Union that paid the real blood price to defeat the Third Reich, right? So when you have two great powers like Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, you have to decide which one is the real enemy and ally with the other. And we decided correctly that Hitler was the real enemy, and we allied with the Soviet Union. In this case, the United States is entering an extremely dangerous security competition with China. And we're going to need all the help we can get to contain China. And that means we need Russia on our side of the ledger. Fascinating. And an important argument that one doesn't really hear made. I mean, the trouble that's happening right now is that the the sort of far-right Russophobia, Russophilia, as it were, is a sort of wrapped up in, in a kind of admiration for authoritarianism. It's kind of wrapped up in a just screw the elite. It has, the argument has not been made in the dispassionate terms that you have just laid out, at least not in the major culture. That the, and, and it's hard, of course, for Americans to wrap their heads around the notion that we're going to have to 
maybe be partners with Russia vis-a-vis China rather than the other way around. It just it, after the training that we had in the Cold War, that's very hard to get your brain around. Although it's been remarkable to me how Trump was able to shift perceptions of Russia within his own party base, which suggests it's not impossible. I also think it's important, this is a discussion I had, and you'll be amused by this maybe, as the Soviet Union fell, we were having a debate within the New Republic, which was one of the wonders of the magazine that we're always fighting with each other. And I was saying, look, it's no longer the Soviet Union. By your very account, we're no longer in an ideological struggle with with a power that's attempting to dominate the entire world. We're in a struggle with a great power that has collapsed and that is reeling. And Russia as an entity is a great power, deserves respect. We should completely change our, our approach to, to Russia once it is no longer the Soviet Union by your very argument that now it's no longer what you've always said it was, which was the justification for a lot of things that I, and I'm not, I, I think containment was the right strategy. But now we're in a new world and Russia is a great power and we have to treat it with respect and, 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 and give it a chance. And that was not welcome news to that. There was a kind of visceral disgust at Russia, just the like of Russia, which I never quite fully came to terms with and couldn't quite understand. But let's, let's move to China because that is the real and primary global challenge, it seems to me. We also made decisions in the 90s and early 2000s that proved to be quite fateful for the future of the world. Tell us your understanding of those decisions and why, in fact, they turned out to have been. Maybe the word comes to my mind is utopian, but but, but maybe you have a, a less pejorative <laughs> word for it. Well, I actually have a more pejorative word, which is remarkably <laughs> foolish. Dumb. Dumb. Dumb, 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 dumb. So a, take, us back to, take, us back to, take us back to those glorious moments when, again, I remember arguments we were having at the New Republic where I was on the wrong side. I thought that economic growth in such a vibrant and talented population would almost certainly lead to a thriving middle class and that we would then become, China would then move towards liberal democracy, blah, 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 blah. And others said to me at the time, actually, uh, do, do props, Leon Wieseltier, my, my old ex-friend, said, no, 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 this completely misunderstands reality. That there's no reason why the Chinese communist government would not use this economic growth to entrench its authoritarianism, to entrench its control of the society. Um, and, and that this sort of Whiggish notion that everything is moving in history, this Hegelian bullshit that somehow everything's going to end everywhere the same, is a delusion. And I, I think I, I look back now and I'm happy to say that I, I was completely overly optimistic about that. But at the time, when we had seen China under Deng Xiaoping definitely reform itself to, to a great extent, to be more open, that we wanted to encourage that process. And we thought by engaging by granting them most favored nation status, by then bringing them into the WTO, the early 2000s, this would all be just a, a wonderful integration of 
China into liberal democratic world, right? That was the argument. Well, why were we wrong? It's just important to emphasize that there's there's sort of two steps in 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 the argument that you're making. The the first step is that by integrating China into the liberal international economy, embedding it in institutions, it would then become a thriving liberal democracy. That's the first step, which you described. The second step is that we would all then live happily ever after. In other words, if China had become rich, prosperous, and democratic, it would be a world of peace, love, and dope. That's the argument. For me, even if it became a liberal democracy, the United States and China would still be at each other's throats, right? So it's just important to understand that there are those two dimensions. We never got to the second step. So the debate is all about the first step. China was an economically backward country in 1990. It had 175th the per capita GNP of the United States. It was a backward country. And what we decided to do in the early 1990s was to help China grow rich on the assumption that it would become a democracy and we would live happily ever after. Well, China grew rich. It is now a remarkably wealthy country compared to what it was in 1990. And furthermore, there are a lot of Chinese people. They have many more people than the United States. And the two principal building blocks of power in international relations are population size and wealth. So when you take a country that has you know, almost four times as many people as the United States and you make it really wealthy, you're creating a country that is going to be more powerful than you are. So what has happened is the United States created a peer competitor. This is probably the greatest strategic blunder in modern history. And now we're in a security competition with this country. And we are in a really dangerous security competition because the flashpoints include places like Taiwan, the South China Sea, the East China Sea just to name the three most prominent flashpoints. And those are places where you can tell a story about how you get a war. So this policy failed miserably. By the way, just as NATO expansion into Eastern Europe failed miserably, just as the Bush Doctrine failed miserably. It's very important to understand that the American foreign policy establishment has pursued bankrupt policies across the board since the Cold War ended. And that's one of the principal reasons that Donald Trump got elected in 2017. You want to remember that Trump ran against the foreign policy establishment, both in the Republican Party and in the Democratic Party, because Trump understood that the Republicans and the Democrats, when it came to foreign policy, were Tweedledee and Tweedledum, and that they had pushed forward policies that had failed at almost every turn. And many Americans found that argument convincing as they should have, because the evidence is perfectly clear. China, however, is the biggest mistake that we made, because again, we've created a peer competitor. Is there any example in history in which a great power has 
deliberately attempted to create a, a rival to its power and done so by taking actions that seem to benefit that other. I mean, I'm thinking of just think of, of, of Imperial Britain and the rise of Germany, for example. I don't think Britain really encouraged it, I mean, or, or, or helped fund it. Germans were quite capable of doing that by themselves. Is there any other example of, 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 of this kind of activity? Well, the closest example is Britain and Imperial Germany. As you know, mm -hmm. Bismarck created Germany in 1870. There was no Germany until 1870. Mm -hmm. It was Prussia. Right. He created Germany. The Germans continued to make lots of babies, and they continued to make lots of steel. So by the early 1900s, I think it's fair to say that Germany was the most powerful state in Europe, quite a bit more powerful than Britain was. The British saw this coming. They saw it coming in the 1880s, certainly in the mm -hmm. 1890s, and in the mm -hmm. early 1900s. And they dealt with the question. They explicitly dealt with the question of whether they could do anything to slow Imperial Germany down. And they came to the conclusion, no, there was nothing they could do. I believe but they were not thinking, how do we speed Germany's development up? That was the one thing they were not. No, no, not at all. With one qualification. But that is what the United States has done with China. Yes. But, but just, just on the American case, they did, they created, they accidentally created a peer competitor. Because the American foreign policy establishment was guided by liberal ideology, not realpolitik. So they didn't think they were creating a peer competitor. They thought they were going to create a giant liberal democracy that would live in peace with the United States. It turned out they were wrong, and we now have a peer competitor. But they did not do this on purpose. So to quote Talleyrand, this is worse than a crime. This was a blunder. <laughs> yes. Now we are where we are. Uh, and to be, real, be a super realist about it, here we are. China is, the last few years, seems to be intensifying its autocratic tendencies and magnifying something that I think has long been misunderstood in America, that, that Chinese nationalism is extraordinarily intense that that we sort of don't appreciate i think quite how that strain of of the pride of china's historic civilization the the intensity of self-belief which is certainly now not la lacking in the united states which is convulsed with self-hatred as far as we can see the chinese are convulsed with self-love and supreme confidence how, how i mean and now we are, they're also obviously extraordinarily wealthy. They're, the military, they are improving quite considerably. And we are committed to a, to a Cold War protection of Taiwan, of the South China Sea, in ways that surely cannot hold in the long run against this kind of power. So what do we do about a question like Taiwan? Taiwan is a really tricky issue. I just want to go back to your discussion of nationalism as a way of segueing into Taiwan. There's no question that nationalism is a potent force in China and that it's centered on what they call the century of national humiliation. Almost everybody who studies Chinese nationalism goes right to the century of national humiliation. 
And it runs from the Opium Wars in the late 1840s up until Mao triumphs in the late 1940s. And the argument is that during those hundred years when China was weak, the great powers, and here we talk today, especially Japan and the United States, took advantage of China's weakness and exploited China. So that's at the heart of Chinese nationalism. Now, And Britain too, presumably. Britain was also, along with Japan and the US, it, it, deeply exploiting Chinese it, weakness. Exactly. But of course, the focus is on Japan and the United States because they're the principal adversaries today. The British mm-hmm. are not the principal adversaries mm-hmm. today. I think you could make an argument, Andrew, that the British did much more to exploit China than the Americans did with the open door policy. Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> right. But today, the Japanese, I mean, the Chinese are not focusing much attention on Britain. No, I understand. Yeah. So, Once they dealt with Hong Kong, it was all, it was it was all over. Yes. Yeah. So um, I'm not an I'm not an imperial nostalgic. Don't worry. So here we are. Yeah, but just why do we go? But just, yeah, just let me say on. a few more words about Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Right. Taiwan mm-hmm. for China is sacred territory. It's bound up with nationalism. It's just not a strategically important piece of real estate, period, end of story. It is strategically important real estate, but it is, more importantly, sacred territory. And who took it away from China? The Japanese in 1895. And who is now preparing to fight to keep it out of China's hands? The United States and the Japanese, right? So you see that you have this important flashpoint, Taiwan, that is inextricably bound up with Chinese nationalism and could easily lead to a conflict, not just for realist reasons having to do with the fact that Taiwan matters strategically, but for realist reasons plus nationalism. I don't understand why people can't see this. Like the the British sent naval ships to rescue the Falkland Islands because they felt that that was integrally part of the United Kingdom and no one had the right to take it away. And there are similar examples in other other powers, but Taiwan is pretty close to China. It speaks the same language. It is ethnically very homogeneous with, with China. It's also one of these places where the West, for example, as I found out when I was writing about this uh, earlier and didn't fully appreciate, that for some reason we have allowed critical semiconductors to be uniquely manufactured in Taiwan. So that if we were to lose it, we would have a huge blow to our technological edge. It's, it's, it's extraordinarily, it seems to me, short-sighted notion that Again, this is a part of global capitalism at this point. It doesn't matter where anything is. All we need is the supply chain. All we need is the production. If we can get cheaper, cheaper products out there, we'll do it there. And if, we can, if Taiwan can be the center for semiconductors because it's cheaper to do it there, great. Why, why would we ever worry about it? I and mean, here we are. With this, this is one of the reasons why we, may not, why we may have to be extremely careful about what happens. Here's my, here's my general gut view. John, and, and tell me how you feel about this. I can't see in a million years how the United, the, the American people will support a potentially catastrophic war in defense of an island that is just 
that is thousands of miles away, that most of them have barely heard of, and that is historically Chinese and right close to a great power. It'd be like, I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty hard to contemplate that that won't at some point be integrated into China as a whole. It just, it just doesn't make sense to me that it won't. So my question is, how do we disengage uh, without violating our own interests? Obviously, we have interests for our allies there, Japan and Australia in particular. So where do, we, where do we go from here? What would be the realist solution to this particular endeavor, except uh, we shouldn't be here in the first place? But now that we are here, what do we do? Well, we're not going to disengage. We're going to defend Taiwan. That decision has been effectively made. The chattering classes like to go on and on about whether we should defend Taiwan or not. In my opinion, we're going to defend Taiwan. It's a, a strategically important piece of real estate for purposes of bottling the Chinese Navy and the Chinese Air Force up inside the first island chain. It's essential that we control Taiwan. Furthermore, if we were to abandon Taiwan now, the consequences on our alliance structure in East Asia would be disastrous. So we will defend Taiwan as long as there is an intense security competition between the United States and China. And there's no end in sight on that front. So we're committed. Now you say, what about the American people? You can't see the American people being willing to defend Taiwan. Do you think the American people are going to vote on whether we defend Taiwan or not? This is not how it works in the United States. In the United States, the president decides to do whatever he or she wants to do. And the president, in my opinion, whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump, will defend Taiwan. And we're moving rapidly in that direction. We're moving rapidly to making it a formal commitment or an informal commitment that looks like a formal commitment, because we understand that it's in our interest to promote deterrence in the Taiwan issue. How do we thereby weaken China? Presumably, that's also part of the goal. I, I think we are to defend. Yeah, I, I think that we will try to weaken China, mainly economically. I, I think there will be an economic arms race, so to speak, involving high technology. I believe that the Trump administration was trying to destroy Huawei, for example. We want to make sure that in the competition over cutting edge technologies in future decades, that we beat the Chinese when it comes to things like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and so forth and so on. We do not want them to beat us. The last time I was in China in the fall of 2019, I had a one-on-one 45-minute meeting with the founding father and CEO of Huawei. And I told him that um, he should understand that the United States was out to destroy Huawei, that this is basically a zero-sum game from America's point of view. He told me he didn't believe that. He spoke like a good American liberal and said that it's an expanding pie, we can all benefit, and so forth and so on. And I told him that I didn't really believe he thought that way, but if he did, he was thinking in a very different way than most Americans in leadership positions. And that what we would do is try as much as possible to slow down China's economy, especially when it comes to developing leading edge, tech, leading edge technologies and beat them on that front. And I think that that's how do what we best happen. beef up? 
how do we best beef up deterrence vis-a-vis Taiwan? What is what is that that is not at the same time provocative and too dangerous? Well, anything that we do militarily to promote deterrence, which we see as very defensive in nature, the Chinese will invariably see as offensive in nature. This is the classic security dilemma, which is to say you can't distinguish between offense and defense. What you, Andrew, do to defend yourself against John looks to John like offensive behavior, right? You say you're pursuing a containment policy against the Soviet Union during the Cold War. They see that as encirclement. You're encircling us, right? And the Chinese today, of course, think that we're encircling them. The Russians think that we're encircling them. We, of course, think we're just containing them. This is the classic security dilemma. So with regard to Taiwan, we're going to build up forces. We're going to form closer military relations with the Taiwanese. This is not only going to anger the Chinese for reasons we were talking about before having to do with nationalism, it's also going to scare them. And they are going to retaliate by building up more arms of their own for what they think are defensive purposes, because they think they're peace-loving, just like we think we're peace-loving. But every time they build up their military forces, we're going to say they are pursuing offense strategies. They are building up offensive military capabilities. And of course, this is what makes the situation so dangerous. And both are nuclear powers. It's, it's interesting how that is sort of bracketed a lot of the time. Why would the conflict over Taiwan escalate into an, a nuclear uh, standoff? Or, or, or is that sort of, is both governments sort of aware that that would be obviously self-destructive and prepared to just rely upon conventional weapons alone? Well, let me make two different arguments with regard to your question that seem to be mm-hmm. somewhat contradictory. The first argument is that you can hypothesize plausible scenarios where you have a purely conventional war over Taiwan or over the South China Sea or over the East China Sea, because these are islands or bodies of water that are not obviously part of the Chinese mainland. So you can have a limited war there. Contrast this with the Cold War where the war we worried about was a war in Central Europe. In Central Europe, you had two massive armies on either side of the inter-German border. Those armies were armed to the teeth with thousands of nuclear weapons. There were thousands of tactical aircraft. And in possible war scenarios, it was hard to imagine a fight not escalating to the nuclear level. So, So deterrence was very robust in Central Europe during the Cold War, because it would have involved a massive conventional war with a serious threat of nuclear escalation. That's not what we're talking about in East Asia. We're talking about fighting limited wars in the water or around islands in the South China Sea or in the East China Sea or over Taiwan itself. I'm not saying war in those circumstances is likely, but it is much more likely than a war on the central front. So that's why you can imagine a war without nuclear weapons. But now to to make a somewhat contradictory argument, it is possible that if one side is losing 
in a fight over Taiwan, let's say the United States is losing in a fight over Taiwan, that it thinks about using nuclear weapons in a limited fashion. And it thinks it can get away with that because it would be out in the water and it would not involve hitting the Chinese mainland. So in a funny way, you can imagine a nuclear war over Taiwan or over the South China Sea or the East China Sea in ways that you couldn't imagine a nuclear war over the Central Front. So in a funny way, you get the worst of both worlds. A limited war is more likely and nuclear use is more likely. And of course, it's important to remember the Chinese regard Taiwan essentially as China. That, that when we think of the mainland and this island, we tend to think of two separate uh, entities. Whereas, of course, in the nationalist Chinese mind, a war in Taiwan is a war in China, right? I mean, is that how they see it? Absolutely. It, this is, again, this is sacred territory. If I say to the Chinese, that you are a revisionist power. You are explicitly a revisionist power because you want to change the status quo over the South China Sea, over the East China Sea, and over Taiwan. They say, no, 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 you are wrong. We are not a revisionist power. We are just interested in getting back what is rightfully ours. Mm -hmm. So they don't view themselves as a revisionist power. We, of course, view them as a revisionist power. How hard would it be, militarily speaking, for China to recapture Taiwan? Pretty hard, I would think. This is, would require an amphibious landing, large numbers of troops. I'm not a military expert, but it does seem to me that, obviously, the advantage would be structurally with the defense rather than offense. I mean, launching wars on from sea with invading armies is, is as, as we know, not an easy thing to do. Yeah, not, it's not easy at all. It's what I call the stopping power of water. But the, the question is, are we talking about Taiwan versus China? Or are we talking about Taiwan, Japan, and the United States versus China? If you're talking about the United States, Japan, and Taiwan up against China, I think, you know, for the foreseeable future, the Chinese are not in a position to conquer Taiwan with relative ease. My view on conventional deterrence, and this would be a conventional war, is that states don't launch conventional wars unless they think they can win quick and decisive victories. If they think it's going to be a Pyrrhic victory, a real bloodletting, or they're not even sure it's going to be a Pyrrhic victory, they won't go. And I think that the United States and Japan working with Taiwan have the capability for the foreseeable future to make it impossible for China to launch an amphibious operation that produces a quick and decisive victory. One could argue, given the size of China, that if they continue to grow economically and the United States stumbles and Japan stumbles, that China could reach the point where it is so powerful. Uh, that it could take back Taiwan with relative ease. That could happen. But that is way out in the future. And who knows what the balance of power will look like then. You spoke about Japan, if you don't mind my exploring that a little bit. Japan, obviously, historically, been a, 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 certainly recent, since, since the war, a, essentially pacifist power, but has not 
relied almost entirely on the United States for its defense. Do you think the rise of China will shift that to a more aggressive or military posture? Has it already done that? What is the future for Japan as a, as a, as a, as a military power? Well, there's no question that the dispute in the East China Sea over these rocks that both the Japanese and the Chinese claim has really mattered for fostering anti-Chinese sentiment in Japan and push the Japanese to think more like realists and therefore to spend more money on defense and to show a real willingness to help the United States to defend Taiwan. So Japan is beginning to act in ways that it did not act during the Cold War. There's no question about that. The problem that the Japanese face is that they are no match for China, in large part because of the population disparity. China is just so much bigger population-wise, and once China grows economically and becomes an economic powerhouse, Japan is dwarfed by Chinese power. So the Japanese rely very heavily on the Americans for their security in East Asia. So there are limits to what the Japanese can do. It will all be done in the context of American security policy. And by the way, one other just key point to mention, Andrew, is Japan does not have nuclear weapons of its own. So it depends on the American nuclear umbrella. And in very important ways, that makes Japan highly dependent on the United States. What do you make so far? I mean, I, this is, maybe this is a, a provocative question, but if you, of the Biden administration's foreign policy positions, what's your, have you been surprised? Have you been unsurprised, impressed, or unimpressed by the first year of this administration's international policy? Well, let me just say, I think that Biden is a conventional politician. At his age, it's quite clear that his brain has been grooved on you know, stereotypical establishment thinking. He's not a wild and crazy guy like Donald Trump. He's you know, got establishment written all over him. And he has a group of advisors who are basically staff people. They're formerly his staff people, and they're not the kind of people who are going to challenge him. So Biden is really in the driver's seat here. And in my opinion, there were three big issues that he confronted when he took over. One was Iran, two was Russia, and three was China. On Iran, he had a deep-seated interest in going back into the JCPOA immediately and making all sorts of nice talk with the Iranians because the moderates were in control then and getting back into the JCPOA, working with the Russians, the Chinese and the Europeans to get that deal done quickly. He failed to do that and he's in real trouble on that one. That issue has not gone away. And the pressure you know, to use military force against Iran is likely to increase if we don't go back into the JCPOA, which looks likely. So he failed there. With regard to Russia, he made a huge mistake, right? He doubled down on Ukraine. And wow, now we're in this total mess in Eastern Europe, where we are, where we are if anything, upping the ante at a time when we should be downsizing our forces in Europe 
and emphasizing China. With regard to China, that's the one place where there's some good news, right? That he has the good sense to see that we have to contain China. You want to remember that Biden and his lieutenants were all people who firmly embraced engagement. Joe Biden played a key role in helping China to become Godzilla. But fortunately, he understands the error of his ways and he's pursuing containment. But the problem is that the administration has not done a good job of focusing laser-like on East Asia and laying out a clear American policy that our allies in the region can follow. And our allies are constantly complaining that we don't know exactly what you folks in the Biden administration have in mind for containing China. And of course, where are we? Meanwhile, we're worrying about Eastern Europe, we're worrying about the Russians, and we're worrying about Iran. My point to you is we should have taken those two problems off the table and focused laser-like on East Asia. That's my basic yeah. assessment. That, that's, that's incredibly clear and <laughs> succinct. Uh, the great pivot to Asia has never quite happened. We keep getting distracted the minute it sort of moves towards that. John, this has been absolutely fascinating and clarifying. The one thing I always found about your writing is that I always know where you are. <laughs> I always know uh, what your argument is. And it's always backed with really rather solid analysis. Obviously, there is a debate about many of these things. And I'm, on this discast, I'm going to be having other points of view over time. But I have to say, I am delighted that you're, you're still here, still a critical part of the conversation. And I hope will be influential in guiding perhaps a future Republican Party, if we can't use the Democratic Party or adjust to a more sane, realist position to advance the interests of the United States and to protect the world from the depredation of another great and not quite so benevolent power. John, a pleasure as always. Please stay in touch. This has been really fascinating. Thank you, Andrew. I enjoyed myself thoroughly and look forward to doing it again. Absolutely. We'll, we'll stay absolutely in touch, John. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all next week. <laughs>